0: Hi, I'm Allison Bukowski, and this is The Customer X-Files. I'm delighted to bring my years of marketing experience to the amazing community that supported me throughout my career. My passion has always been elevating the customer to the focal point of all marketing initiatives, and I'm proud to now lead a marketing organization with a truly customer-led approach. Each episode, I'm joined by an incredible thought leader within the marketing industry Generous enough to share their insights, knowledge, and experience with all of us. Brought to you by the PeerSpot Network, nothing is off limits. And just as our industry continues to evolve, so will this podcast. We will feature guests in live Q&A sessions, panel discussions, and more. So let's get started. everybody welcome so today I am very excited to be chatting with Evan Evan Huck the CEO and co-founder of user evidence after graduating from Stanford Evan started his career as an SDR uh, sales development representative but I don't have to tell anyone here what the acronym stands for and worked his way from that role as an SDR to a VP of sales prior to founding User Evidence, Evan actually led enterprise sales for SurveyMonkey and scaled startup TechValidate, which was then acquired by SurveyMonkey, and he is largely responsible from driving revenue efforts from 0 to over $20 million, which is a very impressive feat. Evan also advises multiple startups. He's, you know, done this a time or two and knows a few things about B2B enterprise sales and go-to-market strategy. And he's also an active angel investor and LP in GTM Fund. Evan lives in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. That's home with his wife and two-year-old daughter. And of course, have to mention the dog, the Golden Retriever. And in his free time, Evan can be found skiing in the Tetons or DJing. Yes, that's right. DJing house or electronic music. And we're going to get to that in a second. But first, welcome, Evan, to the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Allison. Excited to be here.
0: Okay, let's get back to the DJing thing before we, we dive into the professional stuff here, because we all know that I'm a big people before professionals person. Yeah. So I saw your your video on LinkedIn. For, that was your wedding, and that you was. did some DJing. So I lots of questions, but I was thinking, and I, I have to ask, so since you you clearly love music what is your personal anthem and and what i mean by that is like the song that you just crank up when you need to feel good or get pumped and it's okay if it's a guilty pleasure just really curious what it is for you and why
1: yeah so i fun fact i actually DJed coachella one time for those who know what coachella is it's a big festival out in l.a uh, and one of the first artists I saw there that got me into electronic music was Justice, which is like a French DJ duo. Uh, and so one of their songs, Genesis, is my own pop band.
0: That's it. And what is it about electronic dance music?
1: Uh, I think it's just fun. If you've ever been to a show like that, it's obviously high energy, easy to dance to for people who aren't so dance-inclined You basically just kind of bump your fists that would be, that would be uh so yeah it works well um but no i love it it's cool it's more fun to play too as an actual dj like controlling a whole crowd is pretty cool feeling uh so yeah we love it
0: that's that's awesome and i i it's only fair that i answer my own question although everyone now is going to know that you are so much cooler than i am because uh, even though if you ask me about favorite artists it would be tom petty but i'm not gonna lie to you that um like there's too. a song by richard marx called satisfied I, I don't know what it is but it is the one and i play it just like to either feel good or you know achieving something it's the go-to so yeah you're cooler than me because <laughs> my my go-to is richard mark
1: what can i say that's pretty cool too <laughs>
0: Um so let's talk a little bit we're going to kind of dive into a topic that I think could go a variety of different directions today and it's it's a hot topic and it has been I think always this whole like quantity versus quality quality versus quantity but before we do that tell us a little bit about user evidence and the work that you're doing and how it helps folks in a customer Led marketing function, and I think it'll then become also very clear why you and I are together today to have this conversation.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. You know, so I've been in B two B SaaS for twelve years. I would say you know over that time frame, it's, it's tough for vendors because there's just probably a declining kind of trust of vendors, and everyone's got a you know, rightly so a natural skepticism. So customer evidence and social proof or customer voice or whatever you want to call it for coaching purposes is, uh, is a lot more important these days. Um, yeah, user evidence is a way for vendors to, to basically harness the voice of their happy customers and create customer stories at scale. So for people that are in customer marketing, it just, it just takes away a lot of the kind of down level customer story creation, tactical content creation work, which is important, but kind of gets tedious and, and hopefully allows them to, to focus on more you know, strategic customer advocacy stuff.
0: And you and I have had, you know, some some conversations and we talk a lot about reviews, right? And obviously um, everything that you just described, we can kind of see the, the natural intersection there. But I'm curious, like, where were you and, and when did you realize this vital importance of user reviews in a buyer's journey and the decision making process?
1: Well, there's probably a personal answer than a business answer. Um, personal one actually goes back to the the DJ stuff. So when I bought my first set of DJ decks, as a Pioneer uh, CDJ 1000s and a DJM 800 mixer, uh, that was in uh, sophomore year of college, and that was a huge chunk of my you know money <laughs> at the time. And so obviously you want to make sure you get that choice right. And so that was the first time like where I had the really like a high consideration purchase where. You know, I did a lot of research online and dug into communities and, and, you know, found some really great sources of peer-based reviews and information on these particular set of decks. Um, and so, yeah, I think that like when you're in imp- purchase is important. Yeah. That's when you really want to know from other people that have used that product that look like you, that it's going to work. So that was my first like business or personal encounter with it. Business-wise actually is interesting. I was starting user evidence. and went to go look for like a crm because it hadn't been a while i was obviously i'd used Salesforce, but i figured there was a bunch of new stuff out there and I went to you know a review site <laughs> it's all about 98 options i was like holy crap um this is overwhelming first of all but obviously that was uh you know i probably picked the top 10 vendors in the upper right hand quadrant and that started my short list so that was another junction where i realized like wow this is that's basically how a buying process starts now is, is, is on these kind of peer-based review sites.
0: And it it's interesting that you mentioned that, the, the shortlist, right? And how critical that is, you know, right now to the buyer's journey. And, and for whatever it's worth, you know, it's funny because it, maybe I'm a little bit cool. I'm reconsidering, or I used to be cool because that was actually my first personal experience with getting a Pioneer like stereo for my, my first okay. car. And having that installed, and that was a, a little bit before you could, you know, go and like, look at as many reviews online, it was good old word of mouth, right? You know, what, yeah. what have you used? So with that in mind, it, it, there's been such like an acceleration, right, of, you know, reviews over the last several years. And I'm curious, why do you think that that, that criticality has increased so much to you know, the buyer's journey. And you mentioned the short list. So that's at the beginning. And I think a lot of us think about it at the end.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the beginning, why it comes up in the beginning is because there's there's so much overwhelming choice now. Just in pretty much every space, there's going to be dozens of vendors now. And, you know, obviously as a buyer, you don't have the the time or the energy to go do, you know, 27 evaluations, right? So you rely on this kind of crowdsourced um evaluation power to to narrow down your list um and then beyond there it gets a little trickier it's like all right now they have the short list they all have four point they from 4.5 stars out of five 4.8 you know how do i then decide between these 10 on my short list is a much more interesting problem that i think reviews haven't necessarily solved yet or at least the the kind of more amazon style you know it's kind of like a baseline test you go you look at a product you're like all right it's going to have a certain amount of views and high rating and that's kind of the initial sniff test but there's this whole more nuanced like once you've gotten past that you know what makes for an influential review that i think is really interesting so um know, it's more complex and nuanced than i initially looked at but you know the sniff test is probably the first thing you just you have to have some quantity and some good ones most people do now. And then the question is, what do you do beyond that?
0: And I'm curious, on the last episode, I was, it was chatting with Natalie and we were talking about organic advocacy. It's everything that you've discussed, right. Um, As far as like making that short list and, and you're going out there and you're doing your, your research, but then what? So you have the short list and that, then that pushes you right to, to a website, you know, as marketers, that's, we want that to happen. We want folks to come to the website where we've got all of our, you know uh, customer stories, case studies, our videos and things like that, you know, product demos. We want people to land there, but but getting there and making sure that you have that presence early in the in the search, you know are you you work with a lot of marketers as well. you know are you are you seeing that? Are you seeing more emphasis placed on, the importance of reviews at the the front end to kind of funnel traffic to the desired destination.
1: Yeah, I, I do think um, y- yes, uh, because in the buyer's journey nowadays, vendors get to spend you know comparatively much less time with the vendor and with the salesperson. So that a lot of yeah you know, that first call it sixty to seventy percent of the buyer's journey is now done. Through online research. And that may be, you know, generational just because we don't like talking to people anymore. <laughs> or, or you know, for whatever reason. But you know, I, I would assume that and then this probably came from like, you know, a consumer-oriented buying behavior, right? Where we get so used to buying stuff on Amazon or whatever e-commerce sites that we're just like we expect that kind of experience. And so we want a digital oriented sales process without, you know, having to talk to someone. Um granted if you're going to buy $150,000 shirt or something like that you're going to need to talk to someone at some point but i do think you know trend wise you're seeing more of that buyer's journey go before they talk to a salesperson into digitally enabled channels and you know the content that you want to be surfacing at that point you know is credible information from peers or from customers third-party analysts potentially um that is going to kind of solve this early stage social proof problem where traditionally it might've been thought of as like very late stage. I need a reference or something like that, that the, the abstraction of that reference into content I think is now going much earlier in the funnel.
0: And you mentioned reference. So this bonus question here, and then we'll get back to this quality versus quantity, you know, what are some of your thoughts on, on references and their, their impact? On the sales cycle, maybe now today versus previously, and do the reviews and references. Mary, just love to get your take on that.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I just got off a call that looked, looked, hopefully will come become a very big customer of ours, and they talked like live reference call to to three of our references. Uh, and it is super impactful. Like these are awesome conversations. It says such good great things and, and all that. I wish I could do more of those. If I think about why that happened, you know, it's a you know, high hundred thousand dollar plus deal that, that probably merits that sort of live reference, but a majority of our deals are not that. And so we, we don't necessarily get asked for references. So we don't have a ton of control over whether we we surface references or not. I think they're super impactful. Um, but I don't think that's the question the question is like, how do we, if we're not going to get asked, we have these awesome advocates. You know, that wouldn't be awesome if they got on the phone, but no one's asking them to get on the phone. How can we still harness their story in a way where they can convey this awesome experience that they've had, but to, you know, a, a broader audience. So I, I would say like, you know, references are, are, you know, for certainly solutions in the 10 to 50 K range are probably a lot more rare, um, than they were six or seven years ago. Uh, I still think they're incredibly impactful if you can make them happen. But uh, I would I would trap for a world where they're, they probably happen, you know, less often.
0: And do you think, because this this had come up on a LinkedIn conversation not that long ago, and I, I did have to backtrack, I think I said like the one-to-one reference is, is dead. But what I really meant by that is in the traditional form, I think for a lot of us that are uh, practitioners in this space, you know, we think of it as, okay, uh, there's an RFP or, or sales just reaches out and we have to have that one-to-one connection. But everything you said, I agree, is is spot on. I think in your example, those conversations and why they were so impactful and meaningful isn't because a prospect, I mean, nobody, they're not going to expect somebody to say like, boy, this this solution really like, you know, sucks because- yeah, yeah have offered up the reference, but it's the conversations and the connections and the use cases, right, that are discussed, and and what are you doing with it, etc. Which I think is a really nice segue into talking about this quality versus quantity. You and I are in a. I, I think we can just say we're in agreement. Quality is is more important, but but why? You know, from your perspective, why do you feel that so? And then like, what does that actually mean? Quality.
1: Yeah, I think. So. You know, defining what it means first will kind of answer the first question on why it's it's important. Um, you know, good examples like so. Back to that story I was talking about where we're looking at a CRM to buy. Um, you know, I, I went to Salesforce's website obviously because they're the number one ranked on the grid, and you know, I see a bunch of stories about how you know State Farm, for instance, using Salesforce to, to do digital transformation, whatever they're doing. And while very impressive, like, didn't tell me anything about how, you know, a two-person startup is going to use this and why I should choose it versus HubSpot, which is, you know, 30% cheaper, right? And so there's, I think that relevance part and, you know, relevance could be a function of, you know, same industry, same use case, same problem, same size, you know, those grammar will change, you know, based on the, the product, but uh, I think that's probably one of the most interesting factors for quality, but the tough part there is that you can't have that hyper-targeted relevance. Like in other words, you know, for us and we, a, you know, a small startup that is evaluating HubSpot and that Salesforce example without quantity, right? Cause you know, you need, if you think of the permutations on that Salesforce to selling the 16 different industries across three different size bands and they have 20 different products, you know. If they're going to accomplish that relevance you need a lot of quantity to to fill out that library and i think that relevance is one of the things that, there's another one which we can talk about but one of the things that that's an input in the quality equation is 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 this reference review or whatever it is simpler and relevant to me it in for it in my scenario does that make sense
0: no it makes perfect sense that i was jotting down some notes, as I always do during these conversations, because there's, there's all these like, pearls of of wisdom. And I wrote quality equals relevance. And I, I think that's actually quite, quite brilliant. And it makes complete sense that the quality as in what that means to me is just that the, the relevance of my particular situation, my particular use case, um, which is which is kind of as we talk about, you know, what does quality bring to the table, right? That that quantity maybe cannot. I think that's the big piece of it is the ability to see your reflection in that that review or that that feedback, etc.
1: That um, trying to that's get a great way to put it. Yeah, you're, you're reflu- here, but <laughs> no, yeah, I think that's a really good analogy. Your reflection is exactly right. You, you know, you're because if you think about it, what a buyer is trying to do, is is reduce. Risk, Right. And the, the, best way to do that is to understand that that product has worked for someone that looks exactly like you. Um, and so, yeah, I think that reflection element, this is very interesting. The other one, the other element of quality, which is, I think kind of new, but, you know, you know, probably has existed for a while too, is this element of like this kind of rawness or authenticness, um, or, or just human depth to it. I think Over the past X amount of years, you know, we've started to develop, um, you know, I think a healthy spidey sense and skepticism for these kind of like um, curated polished reviews. Like you go on Amazon, right? And like, there's a bunch of five-star reviews. They're like, yeah, this thing's awesome. And it's like, all right, great. Good to see. But sometimes like the most useful ones that are like interesting are like those three and four stars that like have some good stuff to say, but they also have some constructive feedback. And oftentimes, like those, have the most like depth and interestingness, and and you learn the most from those, and you feel like there weren't, you know, just you know, spit out of a a cam from like a director's seat, right? Um, and so I think there's something to that too. It's like, what's the kind of normal raw experience for an average customer? That's probably a good reflection of me versus you know what is the yeah. top five percent of customers feel like?
0: And, and I agree. And there's all kinds of statistics that that have come out now. And, you know, when I was more focused on advocacy work and doing references, that, that one-to-one reference, even when I was bringing, you know, customers into an advocacy program, I was very transparent with them in saying, when you give a reference, um, people don't trust, even though you're right there in the flesh or on the phone, they don't trust saying like, it's amazing, you know, the product is is good, I like it. I like it because it's good. Like there's no, there has to be something constructive, you know, that comes from that because not everything is, is perfection. And that's just not realistic. And as we've gotten a little more sophisticated and then, you know, I guess it's a natural progression and, you know, I move into the review space. Now I think it's um, the most recent numbers that five, like five star ratings or perfect ratings, people blast right past them to your point. 4.7 4.7 okay. and 4.5 to 4.7 is where people are reading because that feels real um, because you're mm-hmm. probably okay. going to find something constructive and when now more than 95% of purchasing decisions have reviews involved in the buying process um, you need to see all of it and you need to be able to find yourself in it but also go in eyes wide open and I I, I think also there there really is something to be said for the constructive reviews the critical reviews um, and and I think sometimes marketers they shy away likely because they're getting pressure from you know senior leadership like no we only want the the, the great reviews and I spend a lot of time talking mm, to marketers sure. where there's a place for criticality um and you can grow from it as an organization but actually your buyers need to see it as well
1: yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, if you think now listening to you talk, like I think about that and it makes total sense, right? Like another thing on that is, you know, if you don't have users that are making suggestions on how to improve the product and are writing critically about, you know, what it's doing and how it can be better, it's probably a decent sign that like that product is not solving like a media enough problem and, and don't have users that care that much to go do that. Right. If it's just a simple tool and they're like, yeah, it's great. It's like, all right. I, you know, I write that off as like, cool. Like not that meaningful to their day to day where they would care enough to go write about, write about it a lot, but yeah, seeing users, even if it's, you know, a mix of good and bad invest time, you know, into explaining a problem to solve and what can going better. Yeah. You know, I think demonstrates and there's a decent proxy for like their, their commitment to that solution. So it's an interesting way to read into like how important this vendor is beyond just how they rate it.
0: Yeah. And it, and it's very, to kind of, you know, kind of push it to the more personal, but even something like online dating and you're looking at at profiles and nobody trusts, like you want the stuff where somebody is real. They're authentic, which means you know maybe they address the fact that you know like yeah, but you know I'm I'm not you know so so great in like large groups like so like that that's not my scene. And just when people are are honest and they can share that kind of information about you know what there's that authenticity that you were talking about. Um, but so my another question for you because I, I get asked this question a lot and I really want to have your take on it, Evan. Um, marketers that are struggling with balancing that kind of the need for that breadth, if you will, and I'll, I'll use that synonymously with quantity, but then also the depth and the quality. Um, how do you, how do you do both actually, so that you're kind of pleasing multiple masters and it's usually like the leadership team and then what they need to actually be successful in their role.
1: Yeah, that is, that is a tough question. Um, and you know different functions within the company meaning like sales like high level brand leadership are going to want different things right let's, let's stick with that salesforce example you know the brand c level people probably want you know the coolest stories out there the Wells Fargo's, fargo the you know state farms or whatever um you know and then some random you know mid market rep you know in the healthcare vertical selling tableau or something you know needs a specific story about that right so you do need to at least consider both needs, but you know, your time as a finite resource. And obviously if you're Salesforce, you're not going to go create, you know, 15,000 in-depth, super high quality stories. Right. So I do think that like concept of tiering your references or or reference content is needed. So it's like, if you want breadth and quantity, like you're going to have to templatize it more and use more one to many approaches of generating content at scale. Which hopefully then does free you up to focus more on, you know, the smaller set of really high quality, high production stories. I, I think it's, it's a miss where you only do one or the other. And then, you know, if you only focus on quality, you're going to miss breadth, and, and you're, you know, for some reps aren't going to get what they need. Um, vice versa, you know, if you only focus on quantity, you know, you're going to have, it is going to lack. You know the authenticity, the polish that's needed at you know uh, for just a different type of use case. So I think, yeah, you know, considering, you know, the audiences that you're serving, and having some sort of tiering model where you can, you know, if you do have a bunch of users, you can at least create some sort of social proof in a more automated, templatized, factory style manner, while doing the more artistic, um, manual work with your your vet set of customers with the most interesting stories. I think is the right way to look it up.
0: I like that the the tearing and I always talk about um, with reviews when I'm having conversations about diversification diversification of your approach, right? Where you you want to make sure, just as you're saying, that you have the right content or, you know, the right thing at the right time, depending on the audience. Same is true if you wanna show up, right, at the right place at the right time. So when you're we're going back to the beginning of our conversation about, you know, making sure that you make that short list, that organic advocacy I was talking about, um you have to have a presence in maybe more than one place. So I always try to tell marketers like, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And Uh I like this. I like the tearing the references. I like diversifying the reviews because how, you know, I think I'm gonna I know how you might answer this, but are prospects or buyers, in your opinion, you know, relying more or less on reviews and then that that buyer journey and then also that role of social proof in that journey? Um, I just want to dig into that a little bit more deeply.
1: I, I think one of the most freeing and powerful concepts is to kind of relax the constraint on the form factor of you know, the broad social proof. So like, someone you get so caught up in like, here's our case study template. You know, if someone can't do that, we're going to, that story is not worth it at all, um, right. Or, you know, if it doesn't fit this particular parameter for this particular review site, you know, it's not going to work at all. So I think, you know, different prospects, are going to want to consume information in different ways. You know, some people might like this type of thing with an audio only podcast. Some people might be wanting to write something. Uh, and read something. Uh, so having a diverse range of, you know, outlets or content types or form factors, um, can be anonymous or named to just, you know, don't throw away a good story just cause it doesn't meet your threshold for, you know, what your typical brand story looks like. Um, if you can do that, it just allows a much broader representation of your user base to go speak out on your behalf and share their story, um, which you know, I, I think communicates a much more ample presence um of um, happy customers for a brand. So that that would be my you know, piece of advice. I think, you know, the answer to your question, you know, generically yes. Yeah, you know, people rely on reviews and, and social proof more. Um I, I would say that, you know, because the the buyer's journey is so complex and and in Byzantine and across all kinds of different channels, across all kinds of personal stakeholders. like You need to have a, a diverse portfolio of options to be able to communicate customer stories that, that don't put undue friction on customers.
0: I know everyone who's listening agrees wholeheartedly with that. Let me ask you for your advice out to those that are listening to help get that buy-in. That uh, There's that word again, diversification of the content is the way to go. And I'm specifically kind of zeroing in on everybody's favorite, the anonymous versus, you know, named logos. What advice do you have for people about how to push that forward when maybe there's some some friction internally?
1: Great question. Um, there's a language thing that's important, right? Um, yeah, I think people that aren't familiar with this kind of stuff reach for the term case study or reference because that's what they're familiar with. But underneath what they're actually asking for, let's say it's a sales rep. It's like, Hey, I need a reference of healthcare. What they're actually might be asking, you don't know you to ask, but is we, we need some evidence to show this prospect that we've worked for people that in their space and their situation, uh, they don't necessarily care what the form is, um, so the way you, you frame that. Yeah. The terminology that he uses is important. I think on the anonymous thing, the way you frame that is important as well. Back to our, our authenticity thing though, like what I've noticed, so user evidence is you know, a little context on the solution. It's basically a survey tool where we capture thousands of responses from a vendor's customers and like create content from it. Anecdotally, what I've noticed is that like the anonymous content tends to be much more interesting and kind of in that, you know, 4.2 star range where they, they do talk about stuff that can be improved and they, they share more detail about their use case, which I think, you know, makes the story a lot more impactful. Obviously the names and logos are cool, but you tend to get a lot more like, yeah, this thing is great. <laughs> um, so two different things. Obviously you need to have a cool logo all on the homepage of your website, but, you know, provided you've done that, uh, which a lot of big customers, big vendors have, you know, I would, I would argue that the, the content of the story is a lot more and the relevance of that story is a lot more important than the logo on it.
0: I, I agree. And I think we were talking earlier about, um, you know, we just, and we just touched on it, but around that authenticity and let's dive in just for a second about, um, the trustworthiness around reviews, that topic has, you know, I think I've seen that more in the last 12 months than I have in the last several years, as far as, well, you know, can the content be trusted? I mean, we have AI and, you know, things that are generating content and things like that. Um, You know, your, I'm just curious, kind of your, your thoughts on that. And then also the fact that there's even like the, you know, the FTC has, has weighed in and taking that very seriously, cracking down on like, no, you, you cannot just generate random, you know, content, but I'm curious just your general thoughts on that. But then also if you agree with me that, I mean, I think buyers are getting pretty savvy that they can pick through, um, you know, what's actually authentic and what they can, they can trust, but any comments on that?
1: I think they are, which is, you know, all the more reason why, like you need to give customers, you know, safe channels, um, uh, through which they can share candidly about their experience. And again, like even for us, like what we're doing, we did a big website announcement and we'll do a big press release next week about this, but we were trying to get quotes for, you know, that press release and I talked to customers that have before given us really meaty, like detailed, awesome quotes, um, and so I went back to them, hoping they would give us that for the press release. And then they, of course, you know, put it through their PR process. And we got this, you know, totally vanilla sounding, boring quote, like, oh, user evidence is such a great partner for, you know, amplifying our go-to-market strategies or something like that. it's just like, man, like, that's cool that they're on the logo, but you can just tell is there's, there's no meat or specificity to this story. Um, and, and that is a bummer. Right. And so, you know, allowing these lower friction channels and safe channels. And that's why I think anonymous contact can be can be hugely valuable, provided it's verified and you know, people aren't just making it up. But I think people are past that. It's like, and it doesn't matter. Like a marketing team couldn't make up a lot of these stories anyway. Like you can tell a real one from a, a you know a marketing oriented story just because the, you know, the, the specificity is not something that you could recreate. So um I'm all for, you know, if you think about it in an employee world in like a glass door sense, right? Um yeah, I, I'm all for giving people safe channels where they can share comfortably outside of this kind of vanilla fabricated like PR uh englazoned um world.
0: Yes, I, I I agree. And I think just to to add to that, because I also agree with what you were saying about, you know, anonymous versus named, you know, sometimes it, I, I'm asked, well, but they only want you know named and usually my feedback to that is would be this right the the buyers are getting that much more savvy it's very easy to pick out what's authentic and what's not and then also understanding the fact that if if you push and that's fine you can push for that logo and that name but to your point all you're going to get is what's been approved And Mm -hmm. approved means that it has been watered down, et cetera. So I've actually tried to encourage marketers to, you know, use it. Like, do you want actual feedback on the product? Does your product team, does your product marketing team, do they really want the feedback on the product and how it's doing so that we can either continue to enhance what's working or we can go and fix what's not? Then we have to accept anonymous feedback coming in, or we have to provide to your point, those safe space, safe spaces and channels. Um, and I and I think we'll start seeing a lot more of that, and I think we'll start seeing a lot more, um, you know, verification and and regulation around the the review content. I think that that's, I think that that's a good thing, um, and I just as much as I think it's okay to have anonymous um, user feedback. So,
1: I think for well, a side note on that, I think the FTC will you know be okay at solving that in a consumer world. I and uh, do not think they'll get it around anytime soon to, to try and so, to solve that in a b2b yeah, context yeah. but um but yeah on the authenticity thing it's like you know, look you can throw you know pasteurized part still you know white mozzarella cheese from a craft bag up on your website where you can serve you know stinky blue cheese that's like direct from a cow yeah one's safer perhaps but <laughs> yeah one's a lot more interesting really. So. I think, you know, leaning towards like finding a couple of good nuggets that, that really shine and smell and speak versus just a bunch of, you know, kind of milk post stuff. And, that and arguably
0: is, more, yeah, more enjoyable too, right? Sure. I mean, come on. Everyone out there is guilty of like, you know, I'll go back to the Amazon example of like, you know, you read the one star. You know, you do yeah. just to see.
1: One idea I had, I was going to create a coffee table book called Zero Star that just never got around to it with like just the funniest negative reviews. I think it would be a great coffee table book, but
0: what you know, if, if you're looking, there's another collaboration for us, Evan. We'll <laughs> we'll go out and we'll find all the you know the zero star reviews because there's some
1: there's some there's
0: there's some really good ones. You know what? When I put when we post this episode, and then I promise I'll get to the last question, but maybe I'll put a link to my favorite like Amazon review of all time, and it is for gummy bears, and we'll just leave it at that. Oh. Um, Okay. So in closing, cause I, I so appreciate your time and I know how busy you are, but I always ask all of the guests, um, for kind of a, a piece of, you know, parting thoughts, piece of advice. Um, what would you offer up? You've had a really interesting and very fast paced career, um, that kind of the, you wish you would have known then that, you know, now, what would you offer up?
1: I think my, my, biggest concern right now in this market, um, particularly in customer marketing, right. Over the last couple of years, like it was hot for a second and it was like number three, fast Australian job. And then it kind of crashed and people are getting laid off and everyone's nervous and everything like that. I think the natural tendency, like when things get tougher is to like tighten up and kind of play it safe and do the, you know, the kind of outrun the bear thing, like as, as long as you're not the slowest person, like you're safe and yeah. As a leader in a company, like, uh, it just doesn't work. Um, and I, I, I see a little prevalence of like very conservative decision-making and just kind of trying to blend in and hide at these bigger companies. And I, I, I think that I, those people will be cut. Um, and so my advice would be just like, be aggressive, like run programs, start something new, um, you know, take ownership and go solve problems in these organizations and make some noise about it, make some mistakes too. Uh, yeah. yeah. For me personally, like I, you know, if someone messes something up, but they showed some initiative to go organize an, uh, you know a program and deliver on something or try to deliver on something, yeah, that's going to stand out a lot more to me than someone who didn't make a stake and just, it just played it safe. So that'd be my advice is just like, while it might feel counterintuitive, like Make some moves, uh, take some risks in this environment. Your career will thank you for it. Um, yeah,
0: that's that's really great, great advice, especially from you know you've come so far and accomplished so much in your career, and I, 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 I love that, and I'm gonna make turn that into an analogy if you don't mind, um, because I know you have, I know you have a little, you know, a little one. And and one on the way, so they're not as old as as my my two girls, but it's like when I walk into the kitchen, and it's a complete disaster zone, right? But my thirteen year old is sitting at the table, and she has made herself lunch. Yeah, like I applaud that. Um, am I thrilled that it's you know going to take forty five minutes to probably clean up the kitchen? No. But I appreciate the fact that there was initiative. There was a problem. She solved the problem. Took the initiative to solve the problem. And if there's a little bit of cleanup that has to happen afterwards, that's the teaching moment. And
1: so, exactly. hope you don't bit, mind yeah. me
0: kind of taking that. And
1: no, they she created something. Right? That creation is invaluable in the company, and it shows growth and and kind of boldness, which I think is is needed in this environment.
0: I, I agree. Well, Evan, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. This is one of my favorite topics. Um, I just really appreciate your insight and everything from your learning and experience. So thank you again for joining us.
1: Thank you, Alison. It was fun to chat with you.
0: And to everyone, I hope that you enjoyed this conversation. Um, feel free to, to share, tune in to other episodes. Um, it's hard to believe that We're already well on our way to 20 episodes, and this is just a blast. It's the favorite part of my job. So thank you guys for allowing me to do it. Thanks again for joining us. Don't forget to follow me, Allison Bukowski, on LinkedIn, where you'll find information about upcoming episodes, Q&A sessions, and live panel discussions with our guests. Customer X-Files is brought to you by Peerspot, the authority on enterprise technology. The PeerSpot Buying Intelligence Platform is where tech professionals go to get the most reliable information on enterprise tech so they can be sure that what they buy is exactly what they need. Powered by a community of over 650,000 enterprise tech professionals who share expertise, PeerSpot provides in depth reviews, buyer's guides, online forums, and more, giving professionals the confidence to make the right buying decision. For more info, check out marketing.peerspot.com. And to keep getting this show in your podcast feed, every time a new episode drops, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.